Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. On the show today, we have Sarah Landry. Sarah Landry spent nine years as a follower of Nityananda, a self-styled Swami. She became one of the most public representatives of the group in 2011 when she started a YouTube channel on which she shared his teachings. And due to the channel's huge popularity, Nityananda brought her into his inner circle of public disciples and declared her the head of his social media team. After discovering, though, that the devoted followers were being mistreated and were being made to live in squalor at their own expense, somehow for their spiritual benefit, and that kids in the organization's schools were being beaten, sleep-deprived, and starved, she quickly exited and began researching cults last year, and now she's coming forward to publicly denounce the group as a destructive cult. Here is the first part of a two-part episode with Sarah Landry. Well, welcome, everybody. I am so happy today to have Sarah Landry on the show. And I know that you've been kind of making the the rounds. (laughs) And, And it's a really important time. It's a really important time in your life and for other people who have experienced abuses and uh, who have had similar experiences in the group that you're going to talk about and also others. And then also to let people know that something that we talked about ahead of time was that you were going to tell your story and talk about what happened to you, but also what happens to you when you start to tell your story Yeah, internally, but also, you know, just from the, um, the public or the people still in or the people still devoted who are just none too pleased with you um, not defaming the group, but just saying, here, this is what happens, and this is what happened. So go ahead and introduce yourself and let people know uh, who you are, and we'll go from there. Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me the chance to share this, because, you know, I, I agree it's so important for those who are still suffering in these groups, and also for those who are getting out of them to know that they're not alone. So my my name is Sarah Landry, and I was involved in the cult, I I call it a destructive cult, the Nityananda Sangha, or an organization of people who follow um, a guru who calls himself Nityananda. And what's funny is that up until maybe last August, um, I wouldn't have said it was a cult. I, I believed it was a spiritual organization, and that the head of that organization really had humanity's best interest at heart. And it's kind of a sordid history, his particular sect, um, that dates back to about 2005 or 2006, depending on who you ask. Um, The the leader of that group himself uh, was raised in a really strict Hindu family um, in a temple town, a kind of a pilgrimage town in South India. And he developed a, a loyal following you know, just after kind of sitting down on the side of a road in a small town and blessing whoever walked by. And, you know, his first group of followers were really pushing him to start a larger mission, you know, to to bring in some international followers. And they believed that he was enlightened and that his blessings were transforming for people. Um, 
And so I got recruited into that cult in about 2009, not about, in exactly 2009. It was September 2009, at a time when some of his wealthy followers had paid for him to come to North America. And so it was one of his North American tours. And, you know, the time that I found him, I really, in retrospect, I think I could have easily been sucked into any cult. It's just that I found his cult first. Um, because at that time, um, I was working as a professional tarot card reader, so I was dabbling in really mystical things and, you know, praying to existence to just show me the right way to enlightenment and help me do what's best for the world and what's best for people. Um, and so right after praying for enlightenment, um, the very next day on my way home from work, I saw his Vancouver Center. And at that time, it was on um, Broadway near Granville Street, close to where I was working. And so I went in for a free meditation. And at first, I was a little put off by the fact that everyone there uh, was wearing necklaces with their leader's picture. I thought that was really silly, and it, it struck me as cheesy. Um, but I kind of just went with it. I, I kept an open mind and decided to see what happens. And one of the things that... I know now is a cult red flag that I didn't know at the time was that when I was asking people, you know, what does this group believe in? What are your goals? Um, what did you have as a result from the program you attended? They all told me, don't think, don't question, just experience it. And so this fact of being told not to think about it, not to question it, just experience it, this is part of their jargon that they repeat before every program. And unfortunately, like I thought, the greatest way that we can experience spirituality is by going beyond the mind. And so the, the main kind of teaching of that guru at the time was something that he called unclutching. It's a term he coined. And he described that, you know, in any day-to-day -day experience, um, we constantly have a chain of interconnected thoughts. Like, just having this conversation now, if I say day-to-day um, -day experience, one person might think about grocery shopping, somebody else would think about work, somebody thinks of taking care of kids. What we were taught by Nityananda is that these interconnected thoughts are holding us back from experiencing the present moment. And that to unclutch from these thoughts means to go beyond that constant thinking verbalization in our heads and into a place where we can experience something transcendent. And so the, the whole goal back then in 2009 was unclutching and going into the thoughtless zone. Um, it seemed fairly, like for lack of a better word, like a, a generic meditation group. Um, and they promoted something called active or dynamic meditation, very similar to what Osho was doing. Mm -hmm. It involved, you know, chanting as a group and humming as a group and um, sitting and listening to Sanskrit prayers, which I still think are quite beautiful if they're listened to, you know, from the right context. But very shortly after finding him, the people in that Vancouver center convinced me that the next step in my spiritual progress would be to go to India. And there was a three-month program coming up called Life Bliss Engineering, and it was an $8,000 program. So I spent like every waking moment saving up my funds to go to that program. And I mean, back then, I was an art school dropout. I, I 
you know, dabbled in reading tarot cards and I worked at the retail store. So it's not like I was anywhere near earning enough money to go to an $8,000 program. But they kept telling me, just have the intention, miracles happen, you'll get the money. And so I, I had basically only positive information about this so-called master. Like at that time, there were no websites denouncing him. In fact, he was quite highly regarded in India. And a lot of his followers were prominent people in society, doctors and engineers and school teachers and principals, even a lot of psychologists. Um, there was a lady I met in the program whose therapist told her she should go to his center and meditate because it had done well for her. So we didn't really have anybody who were ex-members of the cult, maybe because it was so new, right. um, kind of warn us back. So I jumped into a full force and started working seven days a week and selling all my possessions and you know, selling all the art that I had painted in art school and selling all my jewelry and all the clothes I'd collected for retail work. And, you know, my mom saw the intensity of my effort to get there. And, you know, about two weeks before the program, when I was still a few thousand dollars short of my goal, she paid the rest for me. She sent it to me secretly. What she had done was she deposited the money into my bank account without saying she was going to do it. And so imagine the magical thinking I had when people keep telling me miracles will happen. And then I check my bank account and, you know, a few thousand dollars magically, mystically appeared. I thought it was a gift from that guru. Right. That was like the, the first solid experience I had that convinced me it really works and it's good. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to that program on November 15th, 2009. So, you know, just a little bit more than a month after finding that master. And it was a really different ambience than what I was expecting. I, I think I had in my mind, you know, this really serene meditative fantasy of Buddha-like individuals sitting around in lotus posture and chanting and meditating all day and, you know, eating vegetarian food and living in nature. But when I got there, the, the first thing that really struck me by surprise was um, barbed wire fences all around the compound and in a security gate that wouldn't let our car in until we could prove that um, I was registered for this program. And, you know, the dorm where they had participants stay was overcrowded and dirty and the bathrooms were kind of disgusting and the, the rooms where paid participants like myself were staying um, were not much better than the dorms. We were being slept on bunk beds, four people to a room. And for an $8,000 program, I was expecting a little bit more, um, not luxury, but at least comfort. Right. We were told, like, the reason there's only cold water for the morning bath is that we have to break our Western attachment to warm water and to comfort. And we were told the reason the mattresses are thin, it's to break our attachment and build our bodies to hold the energy of enlightenment. Um, We were told that as long as we have expectations of physical comfort, we won't be able to raise our consciousness. And so a lot of these ideas were getting physically inscribed into us through the experience. And, you know, if people complained about the food, like some of the participants were following raw foodist diets. And nothing was provided for them. They were told, you know, boiled rice is part of our Indian um, history. You should eat this. And so we were on 
a high carb, low protein vegetarian diet reliant mostly on white rice. Mm -hmm. And we were told, you know, nutritionists are just filling your heads with propaganda. Your body can create its own nutrients. Your body can create its own vitamins and minerals. Eat this and set a yogic intention and you'll be happy. So we were, we were sleep deprived and malnourished and, you know, forced to do a lot of really ridiculous kind of pseudoscientific practices. Like we were told that we're raising, um, increasing our mitochondria count by meditating, but nobody ever actually, you know, checked our blood to see if this was going on. And because of the group think, like everyone there believed in what we were being told so strongly that if anyone did speak out and question it, that person would be really quickly, um, what they what they use in the terminology is brought to completion. So completion is the word this guru would use for you know being free from inner conflict. And so anytime somebody questioned him, he would say that person is filled with incompletions. And what's interesting is that I've I've been speaking a lot with the first group of teachers trained to conduct that program, that inner awakening and life bliss engineering, his early programs. And I mean, I, I saw your, your interview with Chris Shelton, and I think it, it really struck a chord with me because Nityananda's first group of teachers were given a copy of Dianetics, and they were taught engrams, but they were told to use a different word for engrams. They were given a Sanskrit word for it. So here we were trying to you know, follow the ancient Hindu scriptures not realizing it was just a, a translated into Hindu terminology version of Scientology. Wow. And yeah, the, the, the top-down authoritarian structure of that organization was that Nityananda, as the leader, gave instructions for everything that happened there. And then his inner circle disciples were like the next tier of people who were the enforcers. We had the impression as participants that they were decision makers. Um, but they were actually just enforcing what he told them to do. And then came the teachers and then the volunteers and then the participants. So just to continue on about uh, the volunteer teams, I'm curious to hear more about that. In Sanskrit, they call it seva. And it's something that's kind of typical for any Hindu um, temple or organization. Instead of paying a, a monetary fee, you're expected to do some volunteer work. So the way it was explained to us is that in a temple, um, the work that needs to be done is more janitorial, like sweeping the floor or um, cleaning up the deities after a ceremony. But that in an ashram, the work needs to be more intellectual. And so they were saying to clean up the mess that was made in that organization from the sex tape getting leaked. Uh, what they expected us to do was share our own kind of miraculous stories with that guru so that the internet would be flooded with positivity about him so that maybe the attacks would be kind of pushed to page two or page three of the search engines. Right. And so the volunteer teams included a social media team, which I was put on. And that team was basically meant to create as many Facebook pages as possible, promoting the guru, um, you know, blogging about him. We were expected to learn how to write blogs and then train everybody else in that free volunteer program, how to write blogs. Um, and other teams were, there was a translation team taking all the negative news stories that were in the Indian press 
and translating them into English so that we could understand the level of attack we were under. And of course, the leaders of the ashram at that time were going through all of these translated articles kind of with, with a fine-tooth comb and telling us that it's all invented and it's all lies. And they started creating really defamatory backstories about all the people who were making those articles and, and who were speaking out against the organization. And the, the main thing that sticks out in my memory is that we were told the lady Arti Rao, who accused the guru of multiple rape, multiple times raping her, um, and a guy named Lenin Karupan, who actually gave the video of this guru in bed with an actress to the media, uh, we were told that they were implants from the beginning, that they had joined the mission with an agenda to destroy it, and that they're making up these lies and they're anti-Hindu, um, and that if we listen to what they're saying, we're committing the sin of Guru Droha, which means entertaining abuse against the master. And this, this Guru Droha is something that was kind of um, it was used almost like a fire and brimstone tactic. Like it, it fed on our fears that Lord Shiva, which we're told Nityananda is an incarnation of, can save you from any sin if, if you've committed murder or if you've, if you've stolen something or um, beat somebody up or done any horrible thing. Lord Shiva will still liberate you through your devotion. But if you commit Guru Droha, that's a crime so terrible that even Shiva himself can't free you. Mm, okay. So, I, I mean, rationally, it's ridiculous. <sighs> but the context we were given is that if you kill somebody, they will reincarnate in another birth and their soul will continue on towards enlightenment. But if you commit Guru Droha, you stand between that person and the master who can give them liberation. And for multiple lifetimes, they'll be set back. So that's why we were told Guru Droha is worse than murder. Yeah, if everyone was on a high alert um, that if anybody said anything against Nityananda, that person would be shunned and kicked out of the program, kicked out of the community. Um, we were told very specifically who to keep as friends on Facebook and who to block on Facebook based on whether or not they have even associated with people who commit Roha. Um, and I mean, I've, I've spoken a lot with Ron Miscavige since coming to the public with this story. So, you know, a viewer of mine who's also a viewer of his introduced us. Mm -hmm. And from there, I've come to understand it's exactly the same model. I was just thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, people who would be branded at, Guru Drohis or anti-Hindu elements, um, we're expected to disconnect from them. Mm -hmm. And similarly to survivors of Scientology, people who have left the Nithyananda cult have completely lost connection with their families who are still in the cult. So I know um, mothers and fathers who are not allowed to talk to their kids anymore because their kids are um, in the monastic order, Sanyasi order, which is similar to Sea Org. Yeah, they're, they're very close to this guru and he's told them your parents are anti-Hindu so don't talk to them anymore hmm. and it's creating a lot of suffering yes uh, yes it is and I just wanted to say yeah so many of the things that you're mentioning I've seen play out in different groups and called different things yeah. um, but also this sort of guilt by association that even if you you know you talk to someone who has talked to somebody else who feels this way and you know that's like the 
it's a big chunk of the rest of the world potentially that you're breaking off or the rest of your world that you're breaking off from. I'm also thinking of the terms that you're using and how much high drama there is. Right. Uh, and, and I'm just calling these people um, who have spoken out about their experience anti-Hindu. What? Right? It's like we're having that a lot here now with being called, you know, un-American or anti-American right. just because right. you have a different right. view, you know? Absolutely. Well, and now, now that I've left, Nityananda is trying to make Sangha great again. He's saying whoever speaks out against him, um, they were never meant to be with him in the first place, like a, a tree shaking off the dead leaves. And it's interesting um, comparing it to American politics because he literally told his American disciples vote for Trump. And I mean, it, it's pretty pretentious of a Hindu guru to tell American citizens who to vote for. Um, and we don't really understand his motivation in that, but it, it was a red flag, I think, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, from that program, Living Enlightenment process onwards, that free program where he kind of created the teams in the ashram, um, from then on, one of the most publicly known teams was his Gurukul team. And that's like the residential school in the ashram. Um, he told parents of kids, anybody who was his disciple who had children, he said, um, bring your kids to the Gurukul because the education they get in the Western world is going to destroy them as people. But the education in Gurukul is going to make them world leaders. So he's promised that these kids will become presidents and prime ministers and that they will be um, the heads of temples and, and known to society. So he's basically feeding on the parents' greed for prestige. Um, and he's also playing on the fear tactic where he says that Western schools make people stressed out. And, and he would do it in a way that seems really believable because he'd say, um, say to a, a group of 500 people gathered in his ashram, he'd say, raise your hand if you've graduated a long time ago, but you still have final exam nightmares. And then almost everyone's hand would go up and he'd say, see, that's the toxic effect of these Western schools. So send your kid to the Gurukul. They'll be taught meditation. It's a stress-free environment. Um, he'd say that whereas teachers in, in some Indian rural communities um, yell at the kids or still beat the kids, that would never happen in his school. And I, I want to mention, like, a lot of people have asked if the kids in his school are predominantly orphans um, or kids who needed a free education. They're not. Like the majority of kids in his school have very wealthy parents who are Nityananda's disciples. And so they put their kids in his school thinking it's going to give them an advantage in life. Um, it didn't start out as a free school. It started out as a fairly expensive school. I think something like 20000 a year tuition, even for seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, um, which in, in India, that's astronomical. But from about 2012 onwards, um, his mission kind of changed tone. Like it, it started out as being, you can follow any religion, but also incorporate Swamiji is what we call him, Swamiji's teachings. Suddenly around 2012, it shifted into a very um, Hindu-centric organization. So once you got there for a program, you were told this is now your only religion. And so participants were made to take vows that they would never enter a church or never enter a temple for any religion other than the Hindu religion. And they were told, 
Um, you know, Buddha might be a great historical figure, but he is not Hindu. He's only leading you to nirvana, which is the cessation of senses, whereas the actual highest enlightenment is the inclusion of all senses and also sensation. And so if anybody felt any affinity towards any religion other than Hinduism, they were either told that their religion is a terrorist religion or their religion is, you know, only part of the picture, but not the whole picture. People were really bullied into, you know, us against them mentalities where we have the ultimate truth. Nobody else has it. That's when I feel that the organization became more, I don't want to use the word militant, but extremist. Mm -hmm. And around that time, he also started introducing what he called the, the superpowers of the third eye or the shaktis of the third eye. And a real stress was put onto the Gurukul to manifest powers like reading blindfolded and seeing into people's Akashic records, um, scanning somebody's body and giving them medical diagnoses or remote viewing and describing their houses without ever seeing them physically. And he started pushing that power manifestation um, even more predominantly than their actual academics. Like the, the school actually is accredited as an international school and the, the final exams the kids take come out of London. But suddenly the, the academics were pushed way behind and even the yoga and meditation got put less um, prominently mm-hmm. and was replaced by this power manifesting. Mm-hmm. So, in, in the next few years, um, he started rebuilding his brand as being um, kind of fundamentalist Hinduism, reviving the ancient traditions of Shakti. And he started to say, you know, any other Hindu guru, he used to do a lot of guru bashing against other gurus saying, you know, this Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, um, he offers free programs. Well, you get what you pay for. So if you go to free, free, you get something worthless. Mm. He would kind of make fun of Jagi Vasudev, who's known as Satguru, and say, you know, he's, he's just a um, grihasta, like a married person who's trying to make some money using spirituality. Um, so suddenly, like, it wasn't just that other religions were wrong. It was also that other Hindu leaders weren't as good as he is. And the, the more he, he kind of went on that tangent, um, the less inclusive his disciples became. And really, a lot of us, myself included, got extremely arrogant because we felt like these chosen people who stood through all the persecutions against Swamiji. We thought of it as persecution. And now we know we picked the best guru and we're getting powers that no other organization can give. And, you know, the kids here are going to be presidents in the future. So how cool is this? We get to interact with these little kids who have superpowers Mm -hmm. and one day they're going to be running the world. And, you know, one of the kids who became the most famous um, is a little girl from Houston who was in a video called Girl Demonstrates Cool Superpower. And that video had something like 10 million views. So what I didn't know until much, much later is that Nithyananda was using that girl as an example towards all the other students saying, look how much she's done for me. What have the rest of you done? And kind of, not kind of, but really making everyone else feel guilty. And like they had to rise to her level. And 
around that time, I was still in the background. I, I was a devotee, um, still living in Canada, but really excited about everything going on in Nityananda's community. So I started my own YouTube channel, just sharing his teachings from my perspective, um, talking about the experiences I had had in the 2009 program, not mentioning you know, the, the low protein, high carb diet or the other things that I felt weren't as good. I kind of carefully censored myself and only spoke about the things I thought were great. Yeah. So when I went back for a program in 2015 with my mother, the seating arrangement in the hall was prioritized for the people who had contributed the most money or who did the most volunteer work. So Nityananda himself sat in the center of the room and then the inner circle closest around him were his residential sannyasis who were there, the people in Kavi, like the, um, the monastic members of his order. And then right behind them were people called Sri Mahants who ran the international temples. And then behind them were the Mahants who coordinated major city centers. And then behind them were the Kotaris who are people who um, did the administrative work for those places. And then behind them were the Tanedas who are like the, the local volunteers. And then behind them was everyone else. And so I sat with everyone else because I wasn't really part of that structure yet. And when Nityananda entered the hall, um, he immediately ordered for me to come sit in his closest inner circle. That was the first time I had seen him since um, the 2010, no, not tw since 2012, when I had been there as a volunteer. So I felt really flattered and really excited that he's calling me to his inner circle. And he told everyone there it's because of my YouTube videos. He said I'd done such a great job promoting him without expecting anything in return. And so that was his way to show his appreciation. So of course I got a big ego boost and suddenly felt like I'm chosen, I'm called to be in his, in his close proximity. Right. Um, right. That's when I made the decision to drop my business. I, I had just a small jewelry business online um, and to move there as a full-time resident and to take the Kavi to become one of those sannyasis. And at first there was kind of a honeymoon period. So I would see Nityananda yelling at other people, but I was never really the target of his fury. Um, and he had a temper like nothing I've ever seen before. Really? What was it like? If he didn't like the way somebody did something or the way somebody looked at him or if he felt like he was being disrespected, he would yell at that person sometimes so frighteningly. I mean, the first time I saw his temper, we were, a group of us were on a bus with him. Um, his Mahants, and then a few chosen people from the ashram who were considered high status. And we were returning from the Kumbh Mela in North India, which is like a big spiritual pilgrimage place. We were all going back to his Vidhidi ashram. And it was my, my first week in Kavi. I had just been initiated into that monastic order. So I was really excited to be one of the people chosen to be in his bus. Almost everyone else had to go back in um, rickety public buses or on the train mm -hmm. and you know a, a few hours into our departure he called one of the ladies um, who runs the accounting team he called her to where he was sitting and he he looked at her in a way that I mean words can't describe it like his, his teeth were snarling and he went like he growled at her and I, I was taken aback because I've only ever seen his, his video persona where he's smiling and laughing and blessing people. 
and he proceeded to curse her out and, and called her a dirty dog, called her an idiot, um, told her that she was a complete failure. Um, and then he, he sent women who were on his personal team to accompany her to the back of the bus and to keep blasting her. Blasting is the word that they use there. Um, until she admitted that it was her incompletion that had led her to mess up. Um, so that was the first time I saw his temper. Wow. And just to jump in that, and I want you to re- remember where you are in the story, because that is it's such an interesting piece of it. A lot of people I, I talk to will say that when they leave a system like this, they not only have a lot that they carry with them from the time that they were there, from their the own the things that happened to them, but also the things that they did to other people. Right. And yeah. that they were made to feel like it was for their benefit uh, or to please the leader and that they walk around with a lot of guilt around that. Sounds like that was built into this system too. Oh, absolutely, yes. There were some people he would yell at directly. Um, and we were told it's a blessing if he yells at you because that means he considers you worthy of his personal attention. Uh, and there were other people who he would send others who he had trained to yell at other people. Uh, he would send them to yell at. And that was considered like these are our lower level disciples. They're not even worth his personal attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but I quickly learned once we got back to the ashram from Kumbh Mela that nothing happens there unless it's been directly instructed by him. So nobody yells at somebody else unless he told them to. And nobody, you know, determines the schedule that we have to follow unless he tells them to. And obedience is mandatory. Like the morning routine, the, the yoga followed by puja, followed by his discourse, it's, it's compulsory. If you try to sleep in, you're branded um, incomplete. And it became more and more enforced as time went on. Like by about 2016, 2017, I'd already left because I, I couldn't stand how abusive it was. It felt like my life was hell while I was living there. Um, so I left and I came back to Canada, um, but immediately got love bombed by him. He, from his personal Facebook Messenger account, he started sending me hearts and little, he sent me a little gif of a man crying, watching an airplane take off. And he said, I miss you so much. Um, you know, blessings, you know, let you become complete and return to me. Um, and at one point he even apologized and said, if I had known that you weren't ready for my personal training, I wouldn't have attempted to train you. Um, so he's not really saying, I'm sorry that I yelled at you. He's saying, I'm sorry you weren't ready to be yelled at. Exactly right. I was just writing that down. I was going to say that it's exactly the point I was going to make. I've spent about a year overanalyzing everything that he's said and done there. So, I mean, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. You can swear. Go for it. Go for it. No, I, I was very mind fucked. And I, <laughs> and I believed, you know, how blessed am I that not only he tried to personally train me by blasting me directly, but wow, he's still training me even though I ran away because I wasn't ready to handle his training. This is amazing. Um, and so by August of 2016, even though I had left um, earlier that spring, I went back again. And when I went back, it was an even longer honeymoon phase than the first time. And he told people to treat me nicely. Um, 
I remember one of the ladies who's a lead there who herself is known for being very verbally abusive. Um, she got mad at me once. I don't even remember the exact situation, but she felt like I was disobeying her. And she started getting stressed out and going, oh, oh, and I can't even yell at you because Swamiji told us not to. And I remember thinking like, huh, that's interesting. Yes. Um, and I, I felt at first flattered, like, wow, he won't let people yell at me. I must be special. But then I realized, oh, no, he knows I'm a flight risk. And because I had about 50,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel at that time, he made me the head of the social media team instead of just a member of that team. Um, and he gave me really unrealistic um, instructions, expectations. Um, one was that every single person in his campus had to make three YouTube videos a day. Um, one about the lifestyle and the diet and the yoga, uh, one about devotion, and one inviting people to the programs, like marketing his paid programs. And how many people were there? Uh, there were about 350 or 400. Okay. And, so, three, yeah. so each person was going to make three videos. That, yeah. Yep. That, not possible at yeah. all. That's not possible at all. And especially considering that each of these people has their own full-time seva. Um, so after the morning routine, people in the kitchen would be, you know, doing prep cook, chopping vegetables, boiling rice, making coffee and tea that got served, you know, three times a day. Um, preparing meals for program participants. Mm -hmm. Like they, they had more than a full-time workday already. Mm -hmm. And the average night's sleep for people there was between two and four hours. Oh, so no. it was expected that during their sleep time, that's when they have to make these videos if they didn't find time for it during the day. And so it was my job to go around to everyone else in the campus and make sure they had made their three videos. And if they didn't, uh, he would threaten to send me to a branch campus, which are um, not developed properties. They're like undeveloped properties that have maybe a container, like a train container where people sleep and they have to stay in those branch campuses if they are shunned from the main community because of their failure and their incompletion. Um, and there's a, a branch campus like that connected to the main campus. It's called the Sacred Arts University which sounds amazing. Um, that's where they, they hire craftspeople to make his thrones and to silver and gold plate his thrones and make his jewelry um, and make deities. And, you know, at first I was really excited by the sounds of the Sacred Arts University because having gone to art school myself, I was fascinated that they have craftspeople making deities using the lost wax casting method. And, you know, my inner art student was fascinated by that. Right. Um, but when I actually saw the campus, it is also the ashram dump, like where all the garbage gets sent. A lot of the things that he had stockpiled from construction sites he had bought out, like he had bought lots of um, doorways and architectural pieces from from temples that had been torn down. So he was collecting um, old antique furniture and trellises, like anything you can imagine building right. a temple, he had it stockpiled. And we're talking like heavy stone pieces. So the people who were staying in sacred arts had to create storage facilities for those things. Um, they were expected to maintain the perimeter wall around the campus, 
Um, and he kept buying out the properties adjacent to the campus, so the walls kept shifting. So the sacred arts people were basically the manual laborers of the organization, whereas the majority of us had to wear these really beautiful orange saris for females and, and orange dhotis and kavis for males. If somebody got sent to sacred arts, they were doing something called prayaschita, which means making up for their incompletions, coming back to a complete state. So they weren't allowed to dress in the, the beautiful clothes anymore. They were given things that look kind of like a prisoner's outfit, like mm. baggy orange colored pajama pants and tops, only one set of clothing. Um, they didn't have beds, they had to sleep on the cement floor. Um, it was rat infested and cockroach infested and they, a lot of them didn't have footwear because if they lost their, their sandals or if somebody stole their sandals, which happened there all the time, they had to keep, you know, go around in bare feet. And that's on, on dirt floors and cement floors and, mm. you know, wet, muddy floors. Um, they weren't given food from the main ashram kitchen. They were expected to fend for themselves. And, you know, one of my friends who got banished to sacred arts for a few months, um, told me that, you know, whereas everyone else in the campus went to the morning routine and saw Swamiji on stage, um, they were expected to do it from the cement floors there, including the yoga, and they weren't allowed to see him. And there was one lady in particular who, for her prayas chitta, she was told that she, she doesn't deserve for the master's eyes to fall on her because she's such a low-level, incomplete um, waste of time, like a, a worthless human being. So she was told that if Nityananda ever toured the campus and came near sacred arts, she had to hide. And that if he saw her, she would be sent to an even worse branch campus. You know, I, I remember her one day, um, I, had, I had to take a group of participants on a tour to sacred arts, which is really ironic, um, to show them the deities being made and the jewelry being made. Um, so we had to give them a heads up so that everyone who was dirty and malnourished and, and bad looking would barricade themselves in rooms where these participants on tour wouldn't see them. So it, it, it was like a Potemkin village. Like it, it was the illusion that everyone is happy and that they're enlightened and that they're eating great sattvic food had to be maintained at all costs. And it's like, it was an open secret among all of us that, the lifestyle was really difficult and nobody was really having fun, mm -hmm. but we had to smile in our videos and talk about the teachings as if they were a good thing. Um, and, you know, simultaneously to all of this, that master was cultivating something like a romantic relationship with me. He told me that I was an incarnation of a goddess, um, that I was his Shakti um, and you know, that I was blessed to serve his physical form. So I got to be, got to be one of the people who would massage his feet. And he started to expect more and more while I was massaging his feet. And he started sending me pornographic pictures in Facebook Messenger and telling me that as per Hinduism, there's no such thing as right or wrong, good or bad. We're supposed to transcend the limited human belief that there is right and wrong. and I went along with that feeling chosen and feeling special. And at one point, the, the big red flag for me that this is not actually a divine thing was when he asked me to have a threesome. 
and told me to pick another woman. And I told him, I'm not gay. I'm, I'm not a lesbian. I'm not attracted to other women. I don't want to do this. The very next day in his satsang discourse, he announced to his entire group of followers that in order to realize enlightenment, a human being has to be bisexual. And he said, bisexuals have the highest energy. Um, they don't discriminate against anybody. They're attracted to males and females equally. So they're the only ones who can be trusted in leadership positions. And towards the end of that discourse, he kind of looked down at where I was sitting mm -hmm. in what was called the tech pit, like the little place right under his stage. And, you know, I, I just kind of nodded like, okay, I get, right. I get right. the message. I hear you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. And what, what's interesting is the, the level of covert child abuse going on there in that he told all of his Urupul kids, you have to be bisexual. If you think you're gay or if you think you're straight, that's only a delusion. You are bisexual. And he even told program participants, you know, focus on breaking that incompletion that believes you are gay or straight. Nobody is gay. Nobody is straight. Everyone is bisexual. And, you know, since I left the organization and started speaking up about the abuse I experienced, I've had other women come to me and say, you know, keep this between us. But he also told me I was a goddess and he sent me porn and men are coming up and, and telling me that he told them in order to be good brahmacharis, which means celibate, that part of their celibacy vow meant they had to sexually serve the master because that would break their incompletion of attraction to females. And in that campus, men and women were kept strictly separated. Like a, a woman wasn't allowed to speak to a man and vice versa, unless it was a married person. The married couples could talk to anybody. But in the sannyas order, um, women and men were not permitted to speak to each other. And similarly, the Gurukul kids were kept segregated from the adult population. Um, I would go in every day for about an hour into their school, mm -hmm. teach them public speaking and confidence on stage because I was like the, the stage person. They called me the face of the organization. Um, I always had to introduce the master's programs. And um, if he was ever sleeping or sick and of course he would never tell people that but if he was ever unwell and he couldn't make it for his daily discourse yeah. they would put me up on the stage and I would speak for him um, so I was there to teach the kids public speaking and to overcome stage fright and how to start YouTube channels and because of that um, when I was sent to Toronto on a, a secret mission to get this guru political asylum um, there happened to be a couple, because I should clarify that he has yeah. been charged for rape multiple times. Um, oh, okay. Over, you mean in different countries or in that country? In where In India, specifically in India. Okay. Um, so the, the current rape case against him is not going in his favor. And there was an unbailable arrest warrant issued against him. And he fled the country. He went to hide in South America. Mm. So at the time that he fled, he sent me to Toronto. And he, he sent different disciples to different major cities around the world. Um, and our mission was to reach out to the national government and get him political asylum. They wanted him to get refugee status. Um, we were supposed to prove that he's being religiously persecuted in his home country. 
Um, we had to tell them that the rape cases are fake, that these were created by anti-Hindu elements trying to destroy him. Um, the irony being the people behind these are all born Hindus and practicing Hindus. Yeah, right. So calling them anti-Hindu is, is silly. But I still believed his whole story. Um, so I went to Toronto with the full hope that I would be able to get him asylum. And, you know, there were a few times that I reached out to his administrative inner circle and asked them, um, please, please, please approve a budget for me and send me to Ottawa, because that's Canada's capital. If you want me to reach the national government, you know, Toronto is as far away from Ottawa as, you know, New York City to Washington, D.C. I'm in right. the wrong place. Right. And they basically said, no, we have, we have a temple in Toronto. We have a house for you to stay in Toronto. Um, there's no extra budget approval. Stay in Toronto and do what you need to do from there. And so I was getting frustrated just that I was in the wrong place for that particular mission. Um, but there also happened to be two of the kids from the Gurukul staying in that same house. And they were there with a chaperone and with a lady from the United States who is a retired school principal. Mm -hmm. And it was her job to create a scientific script to introduce the third eye powers to North Americans. And so she was sitting with the kids regularly, interviewing them, asking them, what's it like when you scan somebody's body? What's it like when you read the Akashic Records? How does it feel to read while blindfolded? And she was also taking them out on tours of local businesses, basically showing them off to people trying to get donations and trying to register people for upcoming meditation programs. So one night I was sitting in the basement of that house uh, where we were all staying and the kids came downstairs and the little girl a 13 year old girl from north carolina she she sat down and she put her head on my lap and started to cry and i asked her what was wrong and she said i'm scared of going back to india i wish i could just stay here in toronto with you forever hmm. and her parents are very high in that organization and they live there full-time in the Bidhi ashram where we had come from. So I asked her, why are you scared to go back? Don't you miss your mom and dad? And she said, no, I never get to see them anyway. Oh. She said, um, you know, I'm especially scared because I don't want the December 31st beatings to happen again. And I kind of looked up at the, the other lady who was there with us and, and she just gave me one of these, like she'd never heard of it before and neither had I. So I asked her, what were the December 31st beatings? And she said on the morning of December 31st, 2017, um, before the kids got up for the morning routine for around like 3.30 a.m., 4 a.m., um, the lady who is the head of the Gurukul school entered the girls' dorm, which is like behind a, a chain link fence and closed off um, in, the, in the downstairs part of the thousand bed dorm. So they're kept separate from the adults. So the teacher from the Gurukul came in with a stick. Um, made all the girls get up and then gave the most famous of the little girls that stick and ordered her to beat all of the other girls. Mm. And she was yelling at them and she told them, at that time there was a program going on called Maha Sadashivoham. Um, so there were about a thousand people who had come in from around the world who had paid $13,000 each for this program. 
and the goal of the program was for them to manifest these superpowers. And so every day when the guru gave the initiation, the kids would be brought into the hall with the participants and they were told to entangle with the participants, you know, help them manifest these powers. Ah, okay. So by December 31st, the feedback we were getting from participants was extremely negative. None of them were experiencing anything close to what they had been promised. So this Gurukul teacher told the kids that it's their fault the program is a failure. And she told them, Swamiji is suffering because of your failure. Now it's time for you to feel his pain. And because you're so insensitive and incomplete, you won't be able to feel it on the emotional level, so you have to feel it physically. So she made one little girl beat the other girls. And, you know, I asked the 13-year-old who was telling me about this, like, Mm -hmm. how hard was she beating you? And she said, at first, the girl with the stick just did like a light tap. And then the teacher yelled at her and said, beat them until they bleed or they cry or else it doesn't count. And so some of the girls had, you know, big welts and bruises and they were all crying. Some of them bled. And at this point, I looked over at the boy who was kind of sitting with his head down and I could see he was crying. And I asked him, you know, girls and boys are kept separate, but did the boys know that this had happened in the girls' dorm? Mm -hmm. And he said, not only we knew, but the same thing happened in the boys' dorm. And he said, the boys' dorm, it was a 17-year-old boy who was forced to beat all the other boys. Mm. And I asked him, how, how badly did he beat? And he said, the same way the girls were beaten. And he said that, like, I asked them, which kids were forced to do the beatings. And I knew both of those kids personally, so it was really hard to hear it. Um, And he said that the boy who had to beat the other boys, he was 17, muscular kid. Um, And some of the boys he beat were only seven years old, eight years old, little kids. And he said after he beat them, he just collapsed on the floor and cried because he didn't want to hurt these little guys. One more thing before you go. I so appreciate Sarah telling her story. You will hear part two of it next week, where she gets into what motivated her to leave and what has happened to her since leaving, including the ongoing harassment she's incurring because of deciding to be brave enough to tell her story and reveal a wolf in sheep's clothing. That is something we all deal with in this field, and we all know how it feels when it happens to us. Very early on in this particular episode, she mentioned something that I want to highlight. She mentioned that when she first went to a meeting for this organization, she saw that the people there were wearing necklaces with the leader's picture on them, and she thought that was a little kind of cheesy, as she put it. And as she came to learn more and more about this organization, she was able to see that this was more than just cheesy. To wear a picture of the leader as a necklace, as an amulet to safeguard you and to show your reverence, devotion, that's not necessarily a new idea for some religious organizations. It's not necessarily a dangerous idea. But the irony isn't lost on me that it's something that is tied around your neck and the symbolism of being emotionally strangled or being on a leash of sorts unfortunately fits all too well in this story. She also refers to this necklace that you had to wear 24-7 as a choker, which she also knows, I'm sure, is a very telling word for it. 
So towards the end of the second episode next week, Sarah will talk more about this necklace and the emotional impact it had on her every day that she wore it and the day that she finally took it off. Be sure to listen. It's extremely powerful. But when I think about people having these moments where something seems a little off and the full gravity of it might not necessarily be clear at the time that it happens and the idea that it could be troubling, dangerous, destructive, even pathological, it might not really fully register, but you feel something. It reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. If you're able to take away some of the details and distractions around you and just focus on what your first reaction is, what your immediate reaction is. What is it that you're immediately thinking or feeling? Sometimes you don't know, and again, don't have words for it. But you feel something. And remember that. It's very meaningful. A lot of people come back to that moment when they think about how their life got off track. So in the blink of an eye and in the blink of a realization, you can acquire a lot of information. Some clients of mine talk about being in relationships with people they thought were kind of fine, except they could feel something off. They didn't realize, for example, that there was gaslighting, that the person was trying to control them or kind of was making them feel like something was wrong with them, that they weren't enough of something or they weren't bright or they weren't attractive. Mm, and there were jokes made that were really not funny, power plays, things that were not overt but still left their mark emotionally. And there were some clients of mine who genuinely just got the creeps from people they wound up being together with or following or marrying, and they wish they had followed that first instinct, that blink, that moment that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. But probably the most dramatic story that looks at all of this from a completely different perspective is from a man I worked with who was raised in a hate group that had been started by and run by his father. He was next in line and knew that he would be in charge once his father passed. He had learned the rhetoric and had come to believe a lot of it early on, but saw that when he stepped into his father's shoes that people listened to everything he said and they did everything he told them to do. And one of the speeches he gave at a rally stoked such a fire in people that they went out and caused harm to some of the minorities within that city after the rally. And after that rally, he had a moment where he realized something was wrong. Maybe not the same thing that we would see was wrong with it at the time. And he couldn't put his finger on it, and he still felt like he was leading a cause that he cared about, he believed in. He was making his father proud from heaven, that he was really truly protecting his own people and that his words were the kerosene that were lighting the torches held by his followers, which he still felt proud of at the time. But he said to me in retrospect, there was something, something was wrong, something was off. I'm embarrassed to say that none of those things that were morally reprehensible were the things that registered. I didn't know really the difference between right and wrong at the time. I was racist, I was anti-Semitic, and I had no conflict about them. But after he got back from one of the more intense rallies he led, where he had ascended up to the stage that his father had stood on, and he spoke from the same podium his father had always spoken from, there was something that got into his psyche, and he couldn't put it into words. He was so overwhelmed by it 
that when he went home, he collapsed, actually collapsed down to the ground and remained motionless, actually leaning his back against a wall in the darkness of his home until morning. And by 4.30 that morning, after spending the night thinking, the idea, the thing, that moment, whatever was bothering him, suddenly came to light. It was not what he was saying, but it was how they, the followers, were looking at him while he gave his impassioned speech. The way they were staring at him, the way they were wide-eyed and drinking in everything he said. He saw hypnotic stares before him and looks of rage and looks of intense excitement about the possibility of going out and doing damage, like they were spring-loaded. These were looks that he had never seen because he had never been on the stage before. He had been in the crowd looking up at his father. And not only did he find it unsettling to his core to see the looks in people's eyes, he also found it unsettling to his core that it never bothered his father. And he started wondering what kind of person his father must have been. And he imagined his father as someone who was in charge of people who were not thinking but were having their base instincts triggered, which is something that is all too easy to do. And, as this man said, he saw these people as wind-up toys rather than human beings. And then he thought about how much of a hollow accomplishment it was to get wind-up toys to follow you. And he used to love being able to be a part of a community where he thought people were of like mind, but then wondered how much they were of like mind or how much they were just not thinking. And it unraveled his whole world, everything he knew. With that realization and feeling sickened by it, he packed up his belongings and left before the sun came up. He has since become someone I speak to often. He's a wonderful and insightful man who is a great force for change. And thank goodness that when he had that moment, when he knew something was wrong, even without having the words to describe it. He faced it. He figured it out. And then he made a necessary change. The world would be a better and safer place if there were more people who were propelled and nauseated and frightened by seeing that they could have that ability to make people shut off their minds and just behave and just follow everything they said rather than there being so many people in this world who get blissfully drunk from that moment when they realize how much power they have over others. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.